Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you this Lord's Day. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. Um, If you haven't had a chance, I'd love to be able to say hi to you, to meet you. If you're new or visiting, um, we're grateful that you're here, and hopefully we can encourage you in your walk with the Lord however we can, but especially through the preaching of the Word. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in the book of 2 Samuel to chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're continuing our study of the book of 2 Samuel, and we're going verse by verse through the life of David as he becomes God's chosen king. Actually, he became that king fully. He was coronated last week, as we saw in the beginning of this chapter. And as a person who loves fantasy books, I love Lord of the Rings and all sorts of uh, books about like kings and princes and wars and stuff like that. I find the books of First and Second Samuel to be some of the most interesting parts of the Bible. Um, but of course, it's not just an interesting story. It is the Word of God. It has lessons written for our instruction, if we would have ears to hear today. So with that in mind, let's read the passage together, starting in verse 17 of Second Samuel chapter 5. This is the Word of the Lord. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone up before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we ask, Lord, for your grace as we look into your word, as we read it aloud, as we hear it explained and preached, Lord, that we would remember that these are not just the words of men. These are not just stories. These are your words. God, this is your scripture, your revelation that teaches us about who you are and who we are and how much we are in need of you. So we ask, Lord, that this time, this afternoon of coming to your word would be a time when your spirit is at work in the lives of your people. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you needed a breakthrough? A time when you felt like nothing was working or changing for you? In 2015, there was a teenager whose name was John Smith, uh, kind of a generic name, and he had just finished a basketball game and was hanging out with a couple of his friends on a frozen lake outside of St. Louis. Unfortunately, the weather in that January had turned a little bit warmer than expected, and the ice wasn't as thick as they had hoped. And so as they were playing on the ice, it began to crack, and John and his friends fell through. Two of them made it to shore, but John didn't, and he began to drown in the frozen lake. And he was underwater for 15 minutes before the paramedics and first responders came and pulled him out. 
when they got him out and they put him in the ambulance and they took him to the hospital, he wasn't breathing at all. He was cold and, and, and blue. His heart had stopped. And for the next 30 minutes, they attempted to revive John. They did CPR on him. They wanted him to breathe and get his heart beating again. But nothing they could do seemed to work. And it seemed like everything was over. Now, we'll get back to this story. Sometimes in life, I think we find ourselves in situations like John and probably his family and loved ones. A situation where you feel stuck or maybe even lifeless, not physically, but spiritually. You need something big to happen if anything is going to change, and yet nothing seems to be changing. If that's the case, then this passage in the book of Second Samuel is really for us. Okay, so the sermon today is entitled, The Lord of Breakthroughs, because this is what the passage actually teaches us about our God. In times of opposition and trials and conflict and feeling stuck, our God is a God of breakthroughs. But it's not necessarily the breakthroughs that we want to see happen, but the breakthroughs that he knows we actually need. So let's get right into it. We're going to explore this text in three parts. Why we call God the Lord of breakthroughs in this passage by looking at it, starting with the reality of opposition. Verses 17 and 18. As we look at this passage, as we get into the story, we need to remember that last week David had been anointed and, and crowned and, and installed as king over all of Israel. Finally, all the tribes that had been at war are, are under his rule. They accept him as God's chosen king. We talked about how there were all these good things that came from it, right? That the Lord's king would uh, defeat the Lord's enemies, that he would fulfill the Lord's promises, and that he would bless the Lord's people. But now in verse 17, we see that there is a response to this. And it's not simply smooth sailing, right? It's not just like an easy ride downhill from there. Instead, what we're faced with is the reality that as soon as the Lord's king is crowned, there is a response of opposition. Look at the verses. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So there's these things going on in the country. And we need to kind of get our bearings straight. It's hard for us to, to really think about the nation of Israel and what it would have looked like if we were back then. Unfortunately, out of the three elders at, at Zoe, only Jesse has been to uh, the place of Israel, right? The actual land of Israel. And so James and I are kind of flying blind. You know, we're looking up pictures online and looking at maps. It's a little bit hard to really get um, your mind around that. But to kind of help you out with this situation, um, if we right here are living in Jerusalem, right, right here in this part of Allen, then basically the Philistines all live over in Carrollton, okay? That's where the Philistines live. And, and in between is kind of land that is being fought over between Israel and the Philistines. And so the Philistines come. They, they cross over into Plano, as it were. They're headed towards us. And they are in search, it says, of David. Now, why all of them? Why are they searching, seeking out David? Well, it's because this situation of David becoming king is a big deal to them. It's a threat to them. It's something that, that causes them to want to get him back. You see, this word, this phrasing that all of them were searching for David, it's given because the Philistines have an interesting relationship with the new king of Israel. It's given because the Philistines, if you look at this book and, and you read it in its context, you'll find out that the Philistines thought at this point that David still belonged to them. 
So we need to rewind the tape a little bit. We, we've had different things happen so far, but if you read the, the book of First and Second Samuel together, because it's one book, and you look at the whole story, the last time that we saw the Philistines, David was still on their side. The last time that David was interacting with the Philistines, David was still working for the Philistine king, Achish, in Gath. He was one of his vassals, right? So he had given him a city and David was living in Ziklag and he was going out and he was raiding the enemies of the Israelites. He was, he was taking plunder from them. But when he came back to Achish, who was one of the Philistine lords, he told them, I was raiding Israel. And so they thought that David was on their side. And then if you remember at the end of 1 Samuel, they go to war with Saul and Achish brings David along. That's how much he trusts him. He says, David, come along with me, fight against your own people on the side of the Philistines. And luckily, the other Philistines don't fully trust him yet. They send him back home. But all this time, if you look at the text, David has never officially called to renounce his relationship with Akish. You know, it's kind of like um, David ghosted him. Right? He never officially broke up with Akish. And so we look at this passage. And the Philistines who think that David, even in his civil war with Saul and Ishbosheth and Abner, they think that he's still on their side. Finally, he's crowned as Yahweh's king. He's the Lord's king. He's king over all Israel. And the Philistines get the message. They see the relationship status change online. David is no longer with them. He's loyal to the Lord. And so all of them, all five cities of the Philistines, go out and they're searching for David. They're not going to let him ride off into the sunset. And verse 18 tells us not only did all the Philistines go searching for him, but when David prepares for them to come and he goes to defend himself in the stronghold of Jerusalem, most likely, they come up to the valley of Rephaim, which is very close to Jerusalem, and they spread out. That's the word. They, they swarm into it like ants at a picnic. They fill the valley. And the picture of all this war and historical information and armies and, and geography is meant to show us the reality of opposition. Not to David alone, but to God. You see, as soon as David is installed as God's king, well, the enemies of God rise up in quick and severe and overwhelming fashion. And it reminds us of this truth that the Bible teaches us over and over again, that you cannot serve two masters. See, the opposition to David reminds us that when the Lord is at work, there are forces who will oppose him in the world and in your life as well. The Philistines who once were the lords over David will not let him ride into the sunset. And the things that mastered us before when the Lord is at work in our lives, are not simply content to let us ride off into the sunset either. You know, uh, a few months ago, uh, something happened in the news, and we didn't talk about it because it wasn't really important, um, but Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I don't know if you heard about this, <laughs> this event. And that night, Denzel Washington supposedly pulled Will Smith aside and said, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't lying. When God is at work, the devil, the world, the flesh, the enemies of God will always rise up in opposition to him. Now, if we look at these Old Testament stories of war and stuff, we need to understand this. Right? The Bible is clear that we live in a war. 
an ongoing war. There are enemies of God who do not want the Lord's king in your life. If you don't know that, then maybe you haven't really experienced trying to follow the Lord as king. Often, as it did with David, when the cards are on the table, then opposition will materialize. It'll, it'll pop out of thin air almost. It will be severe and it'll be quick and it will be overwhelming. When you align yourself with Christ and the Lord, your old masters will often come calling. In evangelism class, one of the men was talking about this, that as he's sharing the gospel, sometimes it seems like uh, when someone is understanding what it means to turn to Christ, understanding their need for salvation and forgiveness, and all sorts of things will happen, right? Crying babies and medical emergencies and phone calls and texts. And in our own lives, this is true as well, and we should expect it if we understand the lesson of David. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. You finally come back to church. After years of walking, of backsliding, of, of doing things your own way, you understand that you need Christ to be Lord over your life, to grow And all of a sudden, it's the busiest season you've ever had at work. The busiest season of kids' sports and school. All of a sudden, the things that you once served show up again. Your your non-Christian ex calls, wants to get back together. Or when you've realized your need to to serve the church, to love God's people, you, you finally are in some role you're leading or you're serving, and then all of a sudden, the, the struggles that led to your addiction or your crippling anxiety or your outbursts of anger come again in opposition to you. They rise up in quick, severe, and overwhelming opposition. We understand this text. We need to know, Christian, that your sins will not easily let you go. Your idols will not release their hold on your life so quickly. They won't just wave the white flag and go down, or at least they won't go down without a fight. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What are these rulers and authorities and world powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? We've talked about it before. We've talked about it in community group. We've talked about this is, this is a long-standing summary. They are the flesh, the world, and the devil. The things that once ruled over us to cause us to sin, for sin to reign in our bodies, as Paul says in Romans 6, they will oppose the work of the Lord. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. Our old masters don't like to be kicked off the throne. Now, Understand, when we talk about opposition in our lives, we talk about these spiritual forces, we talk about these, these powers and principalities, as the old King James Version translated it, we are talking about spiritual things. We have to realize that what they are set against in our lives is not just our, our prosperity or our being successful or our having good health. What they're set against is our holiness. They're set against our holiness. See, this is the difference between the prosperity gospel we talk about and, and the true gospel is that the prosperity gospel tells you that, that there are these spiritual forces holding you back from having health and wealth and, and good things. But the Bible says their goal really is for you to live in bondage to sin. Now you think, well, what, what about Job, pastor, right? You look at the book of Job and it looks like Satan comes and he attacks Job's Family, he attacks his prosperity, his wealth, and then after that doesn't work, then he attacks his health, 
right? He's going after all these things. Well, look at the text. Go back and read the story. The only reason that Satan attacks his health and his wealth and his prosperity is because Job will not curse God and sin. That is the goal of these spiritual authorities. That is the goal of the enemy. That is the goal of the opposition in our lives. Not flesh and blood, but spiritual to cause us to sin. The rulers and authorities and and cosmic forces in this world are happy for you to have every physical blessing if you would stay under the rule of sin. So we need to understand that there will be a fight. There will be opposition. And the reality of that opposition does not mean that the Lord has failed, but it serves as the backdrop to his victory, to his victory. And so this is what we see next in this passage, the certainty of victory, starting in verse 19. Read with me. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Now in response to the opposition, David seeks the Lord's guidance as he often does. And this is a contrast with Saul, who often does what he thinks is best without bothering to check with the Lord first. So David, he inquires of the Lord. He checks with the Lord. And as far as we can tell, if you remember back when we were going through this earlier in the book of Samuel, uh, David does this through the priest who has an ephod. And he's able to sometimes answer yes or no questions through the Lord's um, means of giving them the umin and thumim. So David inquires of the Lord. And if the Lord wants to answer, he will. And he does. And in response to David's question of whether he should go up and fight against the Philistines, the response is emphatic. The text says that with the word certainly, which is a translation of the Hebrew phrase, giving I will give. In other words, absolutely, I will definitely 100% give the Philistines into your hand. And this begins the next section, which is all about how God will do that. In verse 20, And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. I said that the title of this message is The Lord of Breakthroughs. And when I titled the message that, honestly, I was a little bit tentative. Uh, here's why because it honestly sounds like the most positive thinking, watered down kind of sermon I, I could think of, right? I felt like I could make a sermon title slide of The Lord of Breakthroughs and I could sell it to every mega church in America, right? They would preach well. But despite my initial trepidation, this is what the text teaches. And so I want to show you that in the text, okay? Uh, We're going to take a quick lesson in the Hebrew language. Most words in Hebrew are made up of three letters or three consonants, okay? They have a root of three letters, not vowels. And you can change up the vowels. You can add beginnings and endings to it. And that kind of gives you kind of the scope of Hebrew words and how they're used in the language. Three letter roots, okay? And one of those roots, which, which shows up in this passage over and over again, is super important. It's the Hebrew letters P, R, and Z, or that's the English equivalent, right? P, R, Z, you can think of the name Perez, which comes up in the Bible. Now, what does this root P, R, Z mean? It shows up in these verses four times, um, but this is how it's used in all of Scripture. On the one hand, it's talking about physically breaking something. So you can break down a wall. You can break apart something, or you can break out of a barrier of some sort. Um, back in Genesis, Tamar was a woman who ended up having twins. 
uh, two boys. And this is kind of a wild story now that I am a father who's actually seen childbirth. Okay, and what happens in Tamar's story is uh, one of the twins starts to come out. And the midwife ties a little red thing around his wrist. And then the twin goes back in. And then the other twin breaks out. Okay, he bursts out first. He, he, he pops out before his brother. And they name him Perez, P-R-Z, because he broke forth from the womb. He broke out of that barrier. The second way that PRZ is used is in regards to growing a family. In other words, when your family grows up and they break off or they break apart, or they break away from you as parents, that is a growing family. And so that same root, PRZ, is used to talk about growth of a family. Thirdly, it's used in regards to urging someone to do something. And the idea here of breaking has to do with breaking down someone's will. Understand how you might say that? I'm breaking down their resistance, right? They have a barrier in place. They don't want to do something, but I'm going to urge them. I'm going to pressure them. I'm going to convince them. And that same word is used here to break down somebody's will. And so PRZ Perez, this root at its most basic form, talks about breaking past some sort of opposition or barrier. And in this particular situation, when it comes to God's defeat of the Philistines before David and his men, it's used in terms of this word breakthrough. It's a great translation. How do we know that? The text says that the Lord has broken through my enemies. That's the first one, or that's one of the times that the word is used. The Lord has broken through my enemies like a breaking flood. Again, the same word used. And the idea of a breaking flood being that of kind of a hole in a levee or a dike that holds water back, bursting, and the water just floods through a seawall. It rushes through the gap. And so this is the terminology used to talk about this battle. God breaks through the enemies of David. These old masters, like watered through a dike. God breaks through, and David calls the place because of that Baal Perazim. Same root again, P-R-Z. What does Baal Perazim mean? Well, Baal was the name of a Canaanite god. You guys know that, right? Uh, It's the name of a Canaanite god in the latter stories of kings. But the word itself originally was just a generic word for Lord. And so as David seeks the Lord in the midst of this opposition, and he does what God tells him to do, he experiences a breakthrough, parazim, that comes from God. See, Baal parazim literally translated means Lord of breakthroughs. That's a great name. It's not really our style at Zoe, but it's not about our style. It's about what's in the text. Our God is the Lord of breakthroughs. We should praise God for that. I was once talking with a friend about the long-standing struggle of sexual sin and temptation. Many of you can relate. And he was remarking about how unstoppable it seemed. How, how it seemed like it just had dominion over his life. And yet it was broken when he brought it into the light. As it says in the book of Ephesians, to walk in the light. When he, when he fought against the sin in the Lord's way, it felt like that, that bondage was taken away. You see, this passage shows us that God's certain victory is promised. God's power to break through the enemy and the opposition for his glory in this world and in our lives is something that will surely happen. God's victory is certain. He will fight the battle. He will win the war when we turn to him. He is the Lord of breakthroughs. And yet hold on for a second. Don't just assume you know what this means. Yeah, I need a breakthrough against this disease. I need a breakthrough against this financial burden. Don't jump ahead just yet. Look at the passage. 
What is the outcome of God's breakthrough? Look at verse 21 with me. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. This is a super interesting note. It should remind us of the beginning of 1 Samuel, all the way back in 1 Samuel 4, when the Israelites went out to war under Hophni and Phinehas, the bad sons of Eli, and they lost, and the ark was captured. Because armies back then, they would sometimes bring their God, so to speak, with them into battle. And the ark was captured, and the ark of the covenant, God's ark, cursed the Philistines. They cut down the, the idol of Dagon, and it cut off his hands, and then all the people were getting sick, and so the Philistines sent the ark back to the Israelites. But this time, the Philistines lose the battle. They leave behind their idols, which are false gods, and those idols don't do anything, but David and his men come, and they carry them away. Well, what happens next? Well, in First Chronicles, a parallel passage, we find out what is implied here that David and his men take the idols of the Philistines, they carry them away, and they burn them. They destroy them. They break down these idols. The Lord defeats the armies of the Philistines. He breaks through them like a flood. And then this little detail, that the outcome is the destruction of idols. Think about it for a moment. And remember that these things are written for our instruction. You know, maybe there is a sense in which you're looking for a breakthrough from God. And you know that, yeah, he's the Lord of breakthroughs, but I don't know why I'm not seeing it. Have you considered, have you thought that perhaps the breakthrough God wants for you is to break down idols in your lives that lead you to sin so that he alone is God? See, what is idolatry? Well, it's simply the worshiping of a false god, anything other than the Lord himself. It is turning a created thing into something that we worship. And of course, idolatry is bad. Every, every culture in the world that has created idols is doing something that is against God's law. But the New Testament expands on the idea of idolatry when Paul says in Colossians 3, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, Paul uses the term idolatry and he takes it from just this external thing where you build up a little statue or whatever and he brings it internally into your heart. That in the things you desire, you are committing adultery. In other words, if you want something, anything so much that you are willing to sin in your attempts to get it, that thing has become an idol, whether or not you recognize it as such. My old pastor used to say, whenever you find something in this world that the Bible says we're supposed to find only in God, that thing has become an idol. How, how do you know it practically? Well, anytime you are searching after something, you're wanting something, you're seeking something, and it leads you to sin or destructiveness in your life, unfaithfulness, it is an idol. And so finding my deepest security in my career or finding my, my truest peace in my money or finding salvation in some way in the success of my children all of that is making those things an idol. And what the Bible tells us and shows us in this passage is an idol can never save. It will fail you and lead you into sin. It will ultimately, by the grace and power of God, be destroyed. This passage tells us that when we think about the opposition and God's victory, it's not just about opposition out there, but also opposition in here. There are enemies outside of us. Okay, we don't want to be, be negligent in talking about that. 
Right? There are enemies and people who oppose the work of God in the world. You cannot turn on your computer or your phone or open your email or look at an ad this week without being reminded of that. Right? That this is a month that, that our culture has designated to celebrate the things that God condemns. Right? It's casting off of God as the one who ultimately tells us who we are because he is our creator and he is Lord. There are enemies who want to remove God from every sphere of society, thinking that will somehow make us enlightened or righteous or wise, but the opposite will happen. It will lead us to despair and hopelessness and sin. There will be enemies of the cross, the gospel, the spread of the church. And so we must hold faithfully to God's word, his truth, and know that God will be triumphant over them eventually in the end. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. What about the opposition inside of us? Are there breakthroughs? Are there victories that Jesus wants us to experience there while we wait patiently for his return and his final kingship? Well, turn to Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13 in the New Testament. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses, In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or if you have the NIV, it translates it this way, and I agree, triumphing over them in the cross. You see, in this passage, Paul says, we battle against rulers and authorities, and God has broken through those enemies, those spiritual opponents, by triumphing over them in the cross. Through the forgiveness of sins. Through making us alive together in Christ. By breaking the power of sin in our lives and allowing us to become then no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. As a Christian, you need to know that as certainly as God has defeated the Philistines as he had promised he would through David, he will defeat sin and idolatry in our lives for his glory. And so we can actually think about what our idols are, and that can be a good news thing. The idol may be of of self-determination, as I touched on, right? We get to determine who we are. Uh, we get to say what is right and wrong and true and false. Everything comes back to, to me. I'm the center of it all. Maybe the idol of ease and wealth, that our enjoyment of this physical world is the greatest good and the highest peace, and that if I just have enough stuff, it'll make life worth living. You see, through the cross, the battle is won, and idols are broken down and broken through. Our God is the Lord of breakthroughs, and he is in the business of breaking down idols in the world, but also in our lives. I think oftentimes we don't experience God's breakthroughs because we just aren't looking rightly. Over sin, over idolatry, over evil in our hearts, God will triumph, even now, even starting today. Only he can do it. So we need, like David, to turn only to him. This leads us to the final part of this passage. We've seen the reality of opposition, the certainty of victory. Finally, what we need to see is the necessity of obedience. The necessity of obedience. We need nothing more than to turn to the Lord and to listen. 
David wins the battle against the Philistines, but it's not the end of the war. Somehow, in a very realistic way, right, uh, David doesn't need God to break through only once. He needs him again. In verse 22, the Philistines come up, came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Same exact setup. Same exact situation. Everything's kind of gone back. It's like a glitch in the matrix, right? Everything's happening one more time. And what does David do? Well, just like before, to David's credit, he doesn't just go out and fight. He doesn't just do what he assumes God wants him to do. He inquires of the Lord again. And as he inquires of the Lord faithfully, the Lord actually leads him even more specifically this time in a different way. This time, the instruction from the Lord is different than before. Verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. You go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. God changes the plan. And we don't know exactly why, okay? We don't know why God decided to tell him to attack uh, in a different way from before, but he does. And in this second victory, instead of this straightforward attack, God, God tells David to go around the back near the balsam trees. This word in Hebrew is the baka trees. That's the word in Hebrew. And honestly, we don't know what that is, okay? Uh, it may surprise you to learn that Trees and plants change a lot in thousands of years, right? If you went back a thousand years in Texas, you'd probably find all sorts of different plants here than are here now. It's just the nature of the world. We don't know exactly what a baka tree is, and all these people and all these commentaries talk about, like, what does the baka tree look like, and what are the things we can uh, consider, and how would it help the army win the war? And you know what? I think they're just misled, okay? It doesn't matter. It's not about the trees winning the war. That's not what the text says. It talks about trees. It tells us where it happened. It tells us there's a sound in the trees. But the point is not that the trees gave David victory, that he used them as like camouflage or, or the sound was so scary to the Philistines. If we're focusing on the trees, we're literally missing the forest. Was God's instruction about them giving David victory? No, it says when you hear the sound of marching in the trees, what does it say? The Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The Lord gave him victory as he did before. And as David did as the Lord commanded him, then he went out and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. It was the Lord who struck down the Philistines, though, before David. See, they both strike down the Philistines, but it's the Lord who goes first. And here's the point we need to make. In the seeking of God's breakthrough, we do have a part to play. Maybe, maybe we lose sight of this because if you're in a church that, that believes in Reformed theology, as we're going to talk about, well, God is ultimately in control and God is the one who deserves all the glory. Sometimes we get it mixed up and we think that means that God is the only one who ever does anything. But the Bible tells us that when it comes to obediently seeking the Lord, we need to listen and obey. We need to follow him. In seeking God's breakthrough, our part is simple. Continual obedience. Now, maybe it's confusing to you, right? Is it God or is it us? Is God the one who does the work or am I the one who has to kind of work really hard towards fighting sin in my life? And maybe we think the same thing about this passage, right? Um, I thought you said that only God can defeat the devil, the world, and the flesh. Only Jesus can do it. So why are we talking about obedience? Well, look here in the passage. God is the one who goes out and strikes the Philistines. His army does the work. 
And yet David, in following after him, gets another breakthrough at Baal Perazim by obedience to the Lord's command. Philippians 2, 12-13 tells us how it works in our lives. In the battle against sin, in the battle for sanctification, in the battle for holiness, Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking to the Philippians, Paul. He says, work out your salvation. Work for it with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does the work. He's the one who gives you even the desire and the strength to do it. But we need continual obedience. It's not that God helps those who help themselves. It's that God gives strength and works in those and for those and through those who seek him. That's how biblical obedience works. And through David's obedience, his victory is not just repeated, it is expanded. The text says that the Lord... And through David, struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And this term is kind of, again, it's a geographical uh, situation. It's a distance of around 12 to maybe 20 miles. We're not exactly sure. But basically, it means that the Philistines are expelled from the main port, the main portion of Israel. He forces them to retreat all the way back to kind of the coastal fortified cities where they came from. And it's a statement to the whiff of God's victory. The Lord pushes back the opposition. And through David's obedience, he gives the people peace. This passage touches us that God is the Lord of breakthroughs. Breakthroughs in this world over his enemies like the Philistines, but in our lives today over sin. And the lesson of David and the Philistines at Baal Perazim is this. If we want the Lord's breakthroughs in our lives to last, if we want them to, to spread, if we want them to, to conquer our sin and these enemies that would lead us to sin, then it will require in our lives continual obedience as well. It will require us to repent and believe a thousand times over from the moment we turn to Christ to the moment we see him face to face. To continually be repenters who seek God's way, not our own. God will break through the rulers and authorities the principalities and powers that desire us to sin. He will break down our idols, our false gods in our hearts. But we have to understand that this is a lifelong battle. This is a lifelong war. Beings living in a fallen and sinful world, our hearts are prone to being invaded by Philistines, as it were. What do I mean? Well, John Calvin, the old theologian, once said, the human heart is a manufacturer of idols. In other words, we can turn anything, anything in this world, anything in our lives, even things that are good things, we can turn them into a false god. We can turn them into idols. And we do this all the time. We should expect opposition to God to come from the world, but also from this heart. And when you understand that and you see that, you'll begin to experience in, in broader and deeper and more powerful ways, the breakthroughs of God in your life. Our victories will not always be instantaneous. There will be areas where opposition seems so entrenched and long-standing and fierce, but if we understand that God is the Lord of breakthroughs, we will have the faith to seek him and obey, and he will be victorious. 
I think so many Christians live their lives, they walk through their Christian lives and, and they assume defeat in this way that, 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 that they're just always going to be the same sinner they were. And, and don't get me wrong, you will always be a sinner, right? You will always be a sinner. And yet, the Bible says, in our struggle with sin, God can give us victory. It's kind of a paradox. It's kind of a mystery, but it's true. You will always be a sinner, but in every temptation, you don't have to sin. If you have Christ, if you have newness of life in him, you can walk in that newness of life. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you haven't read this before, you need to hear it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? Don't be prideful about it. You will struggle with sin, but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Brothers and sisters, you need to know there is no sin in your life which God does not want you to experience victory over. There is no idol in your heart that God does not want to break down. No matter how strong, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how severe, if you have been made alive in Christ, if by his cross you have been set free from the rulers and authorities and worldly powers of darkness, you can mark it down as true. Our God is the Lord of breakthroughs. He will provide a way out. He will break through a path of escape. He will uphold you to endure any temptation as long as you flee from idols and turn to him. And you will not be perfect in it. And you will fail. But when we turn to the Lord, we do experience breakthrough. How then do we do it? Practically speaking, as David did. By prayerful, continual seeking of him and obedience. So if you look at this passage, right, David, he's faced with this army showing up and spreading out again and kind of getting in the Israelites' territory. And yet when he stops to seek the Lord, his strategy is not ruined. It's not like this is a hindrance. His strategy is not, is not harmed at all by the need to stop and seek the Lord. And in the same way it is for us, just like a physical hike, right, is not ruined by the need to stop and drink water, our spiritual lives are never ruined by the need to stop and pray. If you stop and you seek the Lord and you pray for his will to be done in your life, for his power, for his spirit to work in you, to break down sin and idols, that is not a hindrance. That is only a blessing. In other words, how else can we know that we are keeping in step with the Spirit than by seeking the Lord in his word and prayer? Prayer that seeks him, seeks his presence, his will, his correction, his guidance in our lives. We will need to seek the Lord constantly because it's not us who can break down the enemy. It is him. He will work through our obedience, but it is his strength, his power, and ultimately his breakthrough and his glory, not our own. I started this message, this message with the story of John Smith, and so we're going to return there for a moment. I said for 45 minutes, almost an hour, John Smith had no heartbeat. He was apparently frozen. Right? The doctor who worked at the ER that day said when he came in and they had failed to revive him for over 35 minutes, they were ready to, to mark the time of death. And so he invited John's mother to come back into the room and to say her goodbyes to her son who had passed. And as she entered the room, the doctor, who was the yard, you can look it up, it's a crazy story. 
he says that the mom began to pray out loud in the room for Christ to, to save her son. And after 45 minutes, by the grace of God, he actually started to breathe. It's incredible. And, and, and it's a medical miracle. He doesn't have any brain damage today. Nothing seems wrong with him at all. He, he looked basically dead for 45 minutes. And yet, God healed him. It's an incredible story. You can look it up, like I said, if you want. They even made a movie about it entitled, ironically enough, Breakthrough. But here's the thing. John Smith's experience is not the normal course of life for us. It's not what the Bible promises we'll experience. It's not the thing that we should be looking for and expect from the Lord of Breakthroughs every day in our Christian lives. It is a rare miracle, and God deserves the glory, but it does illustrate for us the truth. That when we find ourselves frustrated and surrounded by opposition, when we're burdened and beaten down by sin, it is the Lord of breakthroughs who we truly need. If there is an area in life where you need a breakthrough, a sin in your life, an idol that has hold over you, a temptation that seems to be entrenched, a struggle with contentment and joy and holiness and love, And brothers and sisters, if so, may we turn to Christ, the Lord of breakthroughs in faith. See, the God who broke through at Baal Perazim is the one who broke through on the cross of Calvary. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So will we turn to him and trust in him and seek and obey him and know in our lives that he is the Lord of breakthroughs? Let's pray. Father God, in your word we see in the Old Testament, especially victory after victory, ways in which you defeat every false god and everything set against you. And again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these things are written for our instruction as warnings for us. Lord, we are in a war. There is a spiritual battle that takes place not just in this world, but in our hearts. And yet, Lord, through Christ, through the Lord of breakthroughs, we have all we need to turn away from sin, to turn away from idolatry, to seek you and obey. This time I want to give you a moment to pray if there is an area in your life where you felt stuck and you felt like you need something to change, to consider and pray if the Holy Spirit would show you that there is sin or there's idolatry that you need to seek the Lord in and, and, and fight against in his power and his strength. You seek the Lord for just a few moments and then we'll close together. Father God, I, I know in my own life there are always things that I'm turning into idols. And there are a multitude of ways that might lead me into sin. And God, the reality that we will always be sinners and yet we can have victory, it, it shows us that it's not us, it's you. It's you who, who does the work. It's you who wills and who works to, in our life 
for your good pleasure. And so we pray, God, that you would do that in the life of our church. That we would live in the newness of life for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.